Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Our website, where we house all our shows and sponsor links, is located at www.1001storiespodcast.com. And we invite you to comment on our episodes at facebook.com slash 1001heroes, where you can also get previews on our upcoming shows. One of today's sponsors is audible.com. Check out the end of our show for a way to get the Audible book, Into Africa, The Epic Adventures of Stanley and Livingston by Martin Dugard. Free when you sign up for a 30-day free trial. This is a book we highly recommend, and it will keep you on the edge of your seat, just as we hope this story will. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. In the years following the American Civil War, journalism in America was flourishing. The newspaper was king. The world was becoming smaller every day. And the last largely unexplored continent, Africa, held a huge fascination in the minds of many. The only means of information was the printed word. In October of 1869, James Gordon Bennett, Jr., the 28-year-old editor of the New York Herald, a paper with an astronomical circulation of 60,000 copies a day, sensed a story in the making. Specifically, he hoped to exploit the fame and mystery surrounding British explorer Dr. David Livingston, who had been missing in Africa for four years. Livingston was in Africa to find the source of the Nile River. Explorers had looked for it since Herodotus attempted a search around 460 B.C., but as centuries passed and failures mounted, the quest took on an almost mythical heft. It is not given to us mortals, 18th century French author Montesquieu wrote, to see the Nile feeble and at its source. Martin Dugard's article on Stanley and Livingston, published in the Smithsonian in 2003, goes like this. During the 19th century, as the African interior was slowly charted, the search for Livingston intensified. Most of the explorers, loners, thrill-seekers, and adventurous aristocrats were British, and many of them died from disease, animal attack, or murder. With every failed attempt, Montesquieu's words rang more true. We know today, from satellite images and aerial photographs, that the Nile bubbles from the ground in the mountains of Burundi, between lakes Tanganyika and Victoria. But for centuries, the answer to the source of the Nile was a mystery. Finally, in the waning days of 1864, Sir Roderick Murchison, head of Britain's Royal Geographical Society and the driving force behind countless global expeditions, besieged his old friend David Livingston to find the source. Murchison traveled north from London to Newstead Abbey, the former estate of Lord Byron, where Livingston was staying with friends. At a time when explorers enjoyed the fame of modern-day rock stars, None was better known than the 51-year-old Livingston, a recent widower with four children, with his stutter, crooked left arm, and walrus mustache. Since his first trip to Africa in 1841, he had walked across the Kalahari Desert, traced the path of the 2,200-mile-long Zambezi River, and, in the 1854-56 to journey that made him famous, ambled from one side of Africa to the other, the former missionary's renown was so great that he was mobbed by fans on the streets of London. Livingston had used his fame to preach for the abolition of the slave trade that was decimating the African people. Slavers from Persia, Arabia, and Oman, whom Livingston referred to collectively as Arabs, were penetrating deeper into the continent to capture men, women, and children for sale in the markets of Zanzibar. 
Often, African tribes even raided other tribes and sold captives to the Arabs in exchange for firearms. Despite Livingston's reputation, his finances had been ravaged by a failed expedition up the Zambezi between 1858 and 1863. He had left England in August of 1865, planning to return in two years. Now, here it was, 1871. The larger-than-life explorer had not been heard of in three years. Although Livingston's achievements charting the unknown African continent had galvanized Britain, his government had been apathetic about rescuing him. Bennett decided Americans would do what the British would not. From a hotel room in Paris, he ordered Henry Morton Stanley, a newcomer to the Herald, to lead an expedition into the African wilderness to find the explorer or bring back all possible proofs of his being dead. Not only would this boost circulation for Bennett and the New York Herald, but it would be a stick in the eye of the British and one more feather in the cap for a new United States as it took its first steps on the road to becoming a world power. The trip into the darkest heart of Africa to find Livingston was fraught with peril from beginning to end. There was no guarantee that Livingston was alive. There was never any assurance that Stanley would make it in or out. There were no paths or trails. There were a thousand ways to die, from malaria to starvation to poison arrows and man-eating cannibals. Bennett had no idea how lucky he was that he had picked Henry Morton Stanley for the job. Henry Morton Stanley was born as John Rowlands in Denbyshire, Wales in 1841 to an 18-year-old mother, a prostitute named Elizabeth Perry, who abandoned him as a very young baby. He was cared for by his maternal grandfather, who died when Rowlands was five. He was eventually sent to St. Asaph Workhouse for the poor. The overcrowding and lack of supervision resulted in him being frequently abused by the other boys. By the age of 15, he had completed an elementary education and was employed there as a pupil teacher, helping others to learn. In 1859, at age 18, Rollins, i.e. Stanley, emigrated to the United States in search of a new life and a new identity, which he found when he met a wealthy trader named Henry Hope Stanley, who liked the young man and became his father figure and mentor. Henry Morton Stanley was his new adopted name, and with this name he joined the Confederate Army's 6th Arkansas Infantry Regiment, fighting in the Battle of Shiloh in 1862 at the age of 21. He was wounded, taken prisoner, and then recruited into the Union Army at Camp Douglas, Illinois, to become what was termed as a galvanized Yankee. Eighteen days later, he became severely ill and was mustered out of the Union Army, so he went to work on merchant ships, finally joining the Navy in July of 1864. On board the Minnesota, he became a record keeper and had a knack for it, which led him into freelance journalism. Stanley and a junior colleague jumped ship February 10, 1865, at a port in New Hampshire in search of adventure. He was to find it soon. Stanley was possibly the only man to serve in the Confederate Army, the Union Army, and the Union Navy. After the Civil War, Henry Morton Stanley worked as a journalist and started his new career in journalism by organizing an expedition to the Ottoman Empire, which ended in his being placed in prison. He finally was able to talk his way out of it and even received a restitution for his damaged equipment. In 1867, at age 26, Stanley was recruited by Colonel Samuel Forster Tappan of the Indian Peace Commission to serve as a correspondent to cover the work for several newspapers. Tappan had proposed 
the American Indians be given more authority to govern themselves on reservations. And President Ulysses S. Grant was in favor of that. To reduce corruption, Grant proposed that religious ministers should be appointed as Indian agents rather than military or commercial businessmen. The agencies of Indian reservations were becoming notorious for selling government-acquired provisions at extraordinarily high profits, and greed and graft were running rampant. The solution? Find honest men to do the job. Stanley's job was to report on the success of these developments, and he did so well that he garnered the attention of James Gordon Bennett, the founder of the New York Herald, who was impressed by Stanley's exploits and his direct style of writing. Stanley had been lobbying the owner of the Herald for permission to track down David Livingston, who was known to be in Africa, but had not been heard of for some time. According to Stanley's account, he asked James Gordon Bennett, Jr. how much he could spend, and the answer was, draw 1,000 now, and when you've gone through that, draw another 1,000, and so on, but find Livingston. Money was no object to Bennett who knew that the search itself into the nether regions of Africa would draw huge readership for the Herald. Finding Livingston would be the proverbial icing on the cake. Just how Stanley would draw that money from remote locations within the uncivilized continent wasn't his problem at the moment. In March of 1871, Stanley traveled to Zanzibar and outfitted an expedition with the best of everything, requiring no fewer than 200 porters. He had had nightmares and even pondered suicide to avoid traveling into the eternal feverish region. Despite his anxieties, by March 21, 1871, he had managed to assemble one of the largest expeditions to ever set forth from Zanzibar, so big that Stanley was forced to divide it into five sub-caravans and stagger their departures to avoid robbery. As Stanley set off, he heard rumors that a white man had been seen near Ujiji, some 750 miles inland through jungle. The 700-mile expedition through heavy tropical forest became a nightmare almost immediately. Stanley's thoroughbred stallion was bitten by a tsetse fly and died within a few days. Many of his carriers deserted, and the rest were decimated by tropical diseases. The entourage was battling heavy jungle, insects, deadly snakes, flooding, malaria, starvation, and dysentery. Stanley himself lost 40 pounds within weeks. Of two white companions who had begun the journey with him, one had died from elephantiasis, and the other had fired a pistol at Stanley during a failed mutiny, only to die from smallpox later. Two-thirds of the porters had deserted or died. During the march to Tabora, Stanley had written regularly in his journal, but had sent nothing to the newspaper. On July 4th, he penned his first dispatch to Bennett in the form of a 5,000-word letter, enough to fill the front page of the Herald. In it, Stanley told of his fears and even his contemplation of suicide. I should like to enter into more minute details respecting this new land, which is almost unknown, he wrote, but the very nature of my mission, requiring speed, and all my energy precludes it. Some day, perhaps, the Herald will permit me to describe more minutely the experiences of the long march with all its vicissitudes and pleasures in its columns, and I can assure your readers beforehand that they will not be quite devoid of interest. But now my whole time is occupied in the march and the direction of the expedition, the neglect of which, in any one point, would be productive of disastrous results. Stanley held back the information his audience wanted most until the final paragraph. Livingston, he told them, was rumored to be on his way to Ujiji. Until I hear more of him, or see the long-absent old man face to face, I bid you a farewell, he signed off. But wherever he is, be sure that I shall not give up the chase. 
If alive, you shall hear what he has to say. If dead, I will find him and bring his bones back. Stanley sent his dispatch with a caravan going east with instructions to give it to the American consul in Zanzibar, who would then send it to New York by ship. But Stanley hadn't told his readers everything. A fierce tribal war blocked the road to Ujiji, threatening to derail his entire expedition. Stanley would either have to embroil himself in the fighting or find an alternate, uncharted route to the south. Stanley decided to stop in Tambora, in present-day Tanzania, to regroup. The sprawling village on the savannah was one of three primary Arab enclaves in East Africa. The others were the island of Zanzibar, roughly 400 miles east of Tabora, and Ujiji, 350 miles west on the banks of Lake Tanganyika. Tabora was the crown jewel, its large houses and lavish gardens occupied by the wealthiest Arabs due in part, no doubt, to their flourishing slave trade. As Stanley pondered his course of action, he encountered a far more lethal obstacle. On July 7th, as Stanley sat in the shade in Tabora's afternoon heat, drowsiness washed over him like a drug. The brain was busy. All my life seemed passing in review before me, he wrote. The loveliest feature of all to me was of a noble and true man who called me son. Stanley's intense visions evoked long-forgotten emotions. When these retrospective scenes became serious, I looked serious. When they were sorrowful, I wept hysterically. When they were joyous, I laughed loudly. In fact, Stanley was suffering from dementia brought on by cerebral malaria, the often fatal strain of that disease. The Arabs in Tabora, perhaps seeing Stanley as a valuable asset, helped to cure him of the malaria, but that had weakened his resistance to the point where he developed smallpox. Somehow, some way, he found the strength to survive the smallpox and keep moving on. Stanley never lost his focus on finding Livingston. As the remainder of the caravan neared the Malagarasi River, Tanganyika, October 7, 1871, Stanley was barely in control of the caravan. The cerebral malaria that had nearly killed him in Tabora had been followed by a bout of smallpox. It was a tribute to Stanley's constitution that he was still searching for Livingston. It had been nearly three weeks since he'd left Tabora. The caravan had traveled hundreds of miles out of its way through uncharted terrain to avoid the tribal fighting taking place between Tabora and Ujiji. Food had been scarce, and hunger had slowed the caravan's pace. Now, Stanley's men were pushing to reach the Malagarasi River, a wide, powerful flow that fed Lake Tanganyika. But the men were weak. The expedition was less than 100 miles from Ujiji, but it might as well have been 10 times that distance. On November 1, after two weeks of searching, Stanley finally reached the Malagarasi River. Villages lined its banks, and fish-eating birds could be seen in the shallows. The caravan restocked with food and water, but the Malagarasi offered up another challenge. Crocodiles dotted the surface as far as the eye could see, and the only way to cross was to hire locals to ferry the caravan. By sunset, all were across except the donkeys, which were to swim alongside the canoes held by their halters. The first donkey to go was a favorite of Stanley's named Simba, lion in Swahili. Halfway across, to Stanley's horror, crocodiles attacked Simba and dragged him underwater. That night, sadness permeated the caravan. Simba's gruesome death was a reminder that the same could happen to any of them. All traces of melancholy vanished the next morning, however, when a passing traveler told of seeing a white man in Ujiji. On November 10th of 1871, the Herald Caravan had set forth before dawn on what Stanley hoped would be the last hours of its mission, which had now been an eight-month ordeal. In a few minutes, we shall have reached the spot where we imagine the objects of our search, he wrote. 
The flags are fluttered. The banner of America is in front, waving joyfully, Stanley wrote. The sound of muskets firing and horns blowing filled the air. Never were the stars and stripes so beautiful in my mind. As Stanley entered Ujiji, thousands of people pressed around the caravan. Livingston had been sitting on a straw mat on the mud veranda of his small house, pondering his woeful future when he heard the commotion. Now Livingston got slowly to his feet. Above the throngs of people, he saw the American flag snapping in the breeze and porters bearing an incredible assortment of goods, bales of cloth, huge kettles, tents. This must be a luxurious traveler, Livingston thought, and not one at wit's end like me. Livingston pushed through the crowd and saw a tanned, gaunt man. His boots were worn and his sun-beaten helmet clean. The man had such a formal bearing that, despite the stars and stripes, Livingston assumed he was French. He hoped the traveler spoke English, for Livingston didn't speak a word of French. He thought that they would be a pretty pair of white men in Ujiji if neither one spoke the other's language. What Stanley saw was a pale white man wearing a faded blue cap and patched clothing. The man's hair was white, he had few teeth, and his beard was bushy. He walked, Stanley wrote, with a firm and heavy tread. Stanley describes the scene which is provided here by Eyewitness to History. Stanley Binds Livingston, 1871, at the website eyewitnesstohistory.com. Quote, We push on rapidly. We halt at a little brook, then ascend the long slope of a naked ridge, the very last of the myriads we have crossed. We arrive at the summit, travel across, and arrive at its western rim, and Ujiji is below us. Embowered in the palms, only 500 yards from us, at this grand moment, we do not think of the hundreds of miles we have marched, of the hundreds of hills that we have ascended and descended, of the many forests we have traversed, of the jungles and thickets that annoyed us, of the fervid salt plains that blistered our feet, of the hot suns that scorched us, nor the dangers and difficulties now happily surmounted. Our hearts and our feelings are with our eyes as we peer into the palms and try to make out in which hut or house lives the white man with the gray beard we heard about on the Malagarasi. We are now about 300 yards from the village of Ujiji, and the crowds are dense about me. Suddenly I hear a voice on my right say, Good morning, sir. Startled at hearing this, greeted in the midst of such a crowd of black people, I turn sharply around in search of the man and see him at my side with the blackest of faces, but animated and joyous, a man dressed in a long white shirt with a turban of American sheeting around his woolly head, and I ask, Who the mischief are you? I am Seuss E., the servant of Dr. Livingston, said he, smiling and showing a gleaming row of teeth. What, is Dr. Livingston here? Yes, sir. In this village? Yes, sir. Are you sure? Sure, sure, sir. Why, I just leave him now. In the meantime, the head of the expedition had halted, and Selim said to me, I see the doctor, sir. Oh, what an old man. He's got a white beard. My heart beats fast, but I must not let my face betray my emotions, lest it shall detract from the dignity of a white man appearing under such extraordinary circumstances. So I did that which I thought was most dignified. I pushed back the crowds, and passing from the rear, walked down a living avenue of people until I came in front of the semicircle of Arabs, in the front of which stood the white man with the gray beard. As I advanced slowly toward him, I noticed he was pale, looked wearied, 
had a gray beard, wore a bluish cap with a faded gold band round it, had on a red-sleeved waistcoat and a pair of gray tweed trousers. I would have run to him, only I was a coward in the presence of such a mob. Would have embraced him, only he being an Englishman, I did not know how he would receive me. So I did what cowardice and false pride suggested was the best thing. I walked deliberately to him, took off my hat, and said, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Yes, said he, with a kind smile, lifting his cap slightly. I replace my hat on my head, and he puts on his cap, and we both grasp hands, and I then say aloud, I thank God, doctor, I've been permitted to see you. He answered, I feel thankful that I'm here to welcome you. Then, oblivious of the crowds, oblivious of the men who shared with me my dangers, we, Livingston and I, turn our faces towards his timber. He points to the veranda, or rather, mud platform, under the broad overhanging eaves. He points to his own particular seat, which I see his age and experience in Africa has suggested, namely, a straw mat with a goatskin over it, and another skin nailed against the wall to protect his back from contact with the cold mud. I protest against taking this seat, which so much more befits him than me, but the doctor will not yield. I must take it. Conversation began. What about? I declare I have forgotten. Oh, we mutually asked questions of one another, such as, how did you come here? And where have you been all this long time? The world has believed you to be dead. Yes, that was the way it began. But whatever the doctor informed me, and that which I communicated to him, I cannot correctly report, for I found myself gazing at him, conning the wonderful man at whose side I now sat in Central Africa. Every hair of his head and beard, every wrinkle of his face, the wanness of his features, and the slightly wearied look he wore were all imparting intelligence to me, the knowledge I craved for so much ever since I heard the words, Take what you want, but find Livingston. I called Kaif Halek, or How Do Ye Do, and introduced him to Dr. Livingston, that he might deliver in person to his master the letter bag which he had been entrusted with. This was the famous letter bag marked November 1, 1870, which was now delivered into the doctor's hands 365 days after it left Zanzibar. How long, I wonder, had it remained at Unyanyembe, had I not been dispatched into Central Africa in search of the great traveler? The doctor kept the letter bag on his knees, then presently opened it, looked at the letters contained there, and read one or two of his children's letters. His face in the meantime, lighting up. He asked me to tell him the news. No, doctor, said I. Read your letters first, which I am sure you must be impatient to read. Ah, said he, I have waited years for letters, and I have been taught patience. I can surely afford to wait a few hours longer. No, tell me the general news. How is the world getting along? The meeting between Henry Morton Stanley and Dr. David Livingston in Africa was one of the most sensational news stories of the 19th century. Stanley's greeting, Dr. Livingston, I presume, is still a well-known phrase. The meeting turned public attention to the African slave trade and was a pivotal moment in the relationship among the United States, Europe, and Africa. The Herald was one of the first newspapers in the United States to expand coverage beyond political affairs to entertaining human interest stories of questionable news value in order to reach a mass audience. 
Its editors, who had a reputation for racially insensitive and staunchly anti-British views, foresaw a major scoop when they arranged for a correspondent to go to Africa in search of the missing explorer. Africa became increasingly important to European commercial and humanitarian interests during the 19th century. The shift was dramatic. In 1800, most Africans had seen few, if any, Europeans. In 1900, nearly all of Africa was ruled by Europe. However, little was known about the African interior until technological and medical advances made it possible for Europeans to overcome the continent's formidable geography. Stanley referred to Africa as the Dark Continent in the title of one of his books, titled Through the Dark Continent. The term was first used by missionaries to describe a spiritual darkness in need of the gospel's light. For others, the phrase evoked the continent's unmapped geography, the skin color of its inhabitants, or even the high death toll. Many previous explorers from Europe had died while trying to open up the continent to outside eyes. More than half of the men perished on the four British expeditions sent to Africa prior to Stanley's arrival, including the disastrous Zambezi expedition in 1858 through 1864, which was led by Livingston. Transport was difficult since rapids and sandbanks obstructed the waterways, and draft animals were susceptible to the bite of the tsetse fly, including crocodiles. Diseases such as malaria, sleeping sickness, and yellow fever remained serious threats even after the introduction of medicines like quinine. Livingston himself suffered 27 attacks of malaria during his coast-to-coast journey across Africa from 1853 to 1856. The scene of the two explorers meeting for the first time was memorably depicted in newspapers, magazines, and in Stanley's How I Found Livingston. Dr. Livingston, I presume, is one of the most well-known phrases in the history of journalism. Stanley's greeting was the source of endless mirth back in America and Europe, where the phrase had become a punchline in clubs, pubs, and music halls. Audiences found it amusing to hear a formal introduction used at such an emotionally charged moment in the middle of the African jungle. American audiences laughed at the spectacle at one of their journalists mimicking English customs while at the same time triumphing over rivals in the race to find Livingston. English audiences reveled in the awkward imitation of a gentleman by a Yankee while at the same time regretting their own search party's ineffectiveness. Stanley explained afterward that he had been unsure whether it was truly Dr. Livingston standing before him. Stanley undertook the expedition to find Livingston in Africa in order to make a sensational headline for the press. He had little idea that the meeting with Livingston would turn out to be a pivotal moment in the history of exploration and the future colonization of Africa. Stanley's account of the meeting contributed to the iconic image of Dr. Livingston that had inspired numerous settlers to travel to the continent in his footsteps. The myth of Livingston as a saintly Christian missionary single-handedly combating the slave trade in Africa persisted even though Livingston failed to make a single lasting convert to Christianity or to accomplish his goal to locate the source of the Nile. When Livingston died in 1873, his remains were returned to Britain and ceremoniously interred at Westminster Abbey. Stanley was a pallbearer at the funeral. Now a celebrity himself, Stanley returned to Africa to cover the British campaign against the Ashanti in 1873 and again in 1874 after Livingston's death to pursue the geographical questions about Central Africa left unresolved by previous explorers. Stanley was to take on more expeditions in Africa in the coming years. In 1899, 
the former son of a prostitute, a man with a different name, was now knighted Sir Henry Morton Stanley. He had risen to the level of an international hero. He died in London on May 10, 1904, and his grave in St. Michael's Churchyard in Surrey is marked by a large piece of granite. In it, the words Henry Morton Stanley, Bula Matari, 1841-1904, Africa. Bula Matari means breaker of rocks, which had become Stanley's name among the locals in the Congo. You can get a free copy of Martin Dugard's Into Africa, the story of Stanley and Livingston, when you sign up for a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash 1001heroes. That's audible.com slash 1001heroes. We highly recommend this book. It's a great read. Again, it's Martin Dugard's Into Africa, the story of Stanley and Livingston. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Our website is www.1001storiespodcast.com, where you can also find that link to Audible. And our Facebook is facebook.com slash 1001heroes. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. (laughs) 